Jones, Australia's leading voice. Well, good evening. I'm Alan Jones and I'm back. Well, of course I am. I'm here, aren't I? Tell your friends you can watch this program very easily, Alan Jones Live and On Demand on the brand new ADH app. Now, ADH stands for Australian Digital Holdings, the name of the company. Anyway, just search, then download ADH on the Apple TV app store. This sounds complicated, but it's not. Or on Google Play, and there I am, Monday to Thursday at 8pm. It's free and very easy to do. Now, once you've downloaded the ADH app on your television, you can watch me live at 8pm or on demand, meaning whenever you like. Get your friends and family to show others how to do it. The one other way you can watch me is by going to the brand new website, adh.tv, on your phone, your laptop, or wherever else you can access the internet. You'll love it. It's magnificent. Brand new. Everything's there. So go to, the, go to adh.tv and click the flashing Watch Now button. But that's not all. On the website, adh.tv, you can now read contributions by a stable of very distinguished columnists. They include Nick Cater, Mark Latham, Professor David Flint, the very impressive Bella Dabrera from the IPA, Michael Yabsley, the University of Queensland Garrick Professor in Law, Professor James Allen, Rebecca Weisser, Will Kingston and Tom Switzer, amongst others. It is a stellar lineup of writers. Read all their columns for free on the website, adh.tv. Now, for those wondering what we at ADH are all about, it's simple. We will represent those who feel forgotten, those who feel their views are forgotten and what is worse, ignored. We will be your voice, the voice of the voiceless. We've always been that. And after the most illiberal, insane and most unbelievable two years of our lives, both in Australia and abroad, this country requires a media outlet which broadcasts truth, promotes freedom of opinion and open debate. Without it, we are no better than Xi's China or Putin's Russia. ADH is your new home for news consumption. Digital television is our future. It's accessible, it's free, and you can watch live and on demand. So come with me on the journey. And yes, we'll continue to rattle a few cages. So thank you for joining me tonight, but make sure you tell your friends. Now, let's get into it. Well, what's this election about? There's been plenty written and said, but many realities have been ignored. There's been a lot of focus on the House of Representatives, but I will be urging that there be greater focus in this election on the Senate. I'll come to that closer to election day. But let us look at the mountain that the Morrison government has to climb. There are 151 seats up for grabs in the House of Representatives. Now, the coalition technically has 76, just a majority, but Craig Kelly from Hughes is a defection, so that makes 75. Labor holds 69. Someone to govern has to get 76, so the coalition has to at least hold every seat it currently has to win government. Yet, as you know, in the state election in WA last year, the Liberal Party was virtually wiped out. There are 16 seats in WA, 11 held by the Liberals. Holding all of them would be the first miracle. More recently, the Liberal Party in South Australia, and we've seen that election, suffered massive swings. 
There are 10 federal seats for uh, Liberal in South Australia. The Liberal Party will struggle to hold at least two of those four. The Liberal Party in New South Wales is in disarray, where the rank and file were denied their rightful entitlement to vote on the candidate who would represent them at the election. There are 47 federal electorate seats in New South Wales. 15 are Liberal. All will have to be held. Yet seats like Wentworth, Cowper, McKellar, Hughes, Calair, North Sydney, Bradfield and Warringah are all being challenged by so-called independents who are Climate 200 supported candidates. There's anger in the New South Wales Liberal Party that the members have been denied a voice. In the seat of North Sydney, for example, held by a bloke who has never faced a pre-selection, Trent Zimmerman, there are even reportedly Liberal branches who won't be supporting him. Yet every seat in New South Wales, all 15 Liberal seats must be retained. Go further south to Victoria and I'll speak shortly to the number one Victorian Federal MP, the number one Liberal, Treasurer Josh Frydenberg. There are 38 Federal seats in Victoria, 12 are Liberal, only 12. But even the Treasurer himself is under siege in Kuyong from another Climate 200 supported candidate. In Goldstein, there is a high profile so-called independent and a new seat has been created through the redistribution in Victoria, and that's the seat of Hawke, which is notionally Labor. So it would be a brave man who wagered that the Liberals could hold all 12 seats in Victoria. Go south to Tasmania, where ridiculously we have a state with a population of 540,000, yet the population of Newcastle and Wollongong totals 617,000. Now, who would think of giving them what Tasmanians enjoy, five seats in the House of Representatives, 12 senators, 25 seats in the lower house of the Tasmanian Parliament, 15 members in the upper house and 29 local government municipalities for a population of 540,000. Talk about overgoverned. But in Tasmania, the two Liberal seats there are under siege. The reality is this is a monumental challenge for the coalition. And the polls in favour of Labor, the latest out today, don't seem to move. This is at a time when people barely know Anthony Albanese and see him as a bit of a blank canvas. The further problem for the government is that voters in the key demographics that helped Scott Morrison win the last election seem to have deserted the coalition. Polling suggests sharp falls in support amongst working families. Now inflation is on the march. Interest rate increases are imminent. The price of groceries continues to climb and there is immense pressure on household budgets. The global rise in the price of oil has increased the cost of everything from transporting food to packaging. And a recent national survey representing 1,005 Australians found nearly two in three were worried about the rise in prices for food and groceries. Allied to all of this is the genuine concern amongst grassroots Liberals that in relation to traditional Liberal values, like freedom of speech, smaller government, lower taxes, an education system dominated by a knowledge of the basics and an understanding of Australian history. True Liberals, Menzies Liberals, Howard Liberals, Abbott Liberals are arguing the Liberal Party has lost its way on these issues. They now feel they are Menzies' forgotten people. Remember, it was Menzies who asserted that the, quote, forgotten people, unquote, were, quote, the backbone of the nation, unquote, because they were, quote, envied by those whose benefits are largely obtained by taxing them, unquote. Well, many Australians now argue 
that the worker is taxed to the eyeballs and too much money is splashed around for those who don't work. Into this turbulent mix has been thrown literally the Liberal candidate for Warringah, Catherine Deves. Little does she know that metaphorically she could well save the Liberal Party. As you know, her predominant issue is that women should only compete against biological women in sport. Now, the Prime Minister, in supporting Catherine Deves, may, without knowing it, have stumbled upon an issue which redeems him. He said Australians are, quote, sick of walking on eggshells, unquote, about trans women in sport. Prime Minister, Australians are sick of walking on eggshells, full stop, terrified to say what they think, with a library of statutes ready to be thrown at them for expressing a personal view. Remember in Victoria, when a pregnant woman was arrested, this is in the middle of coronavirus, in her own home for posting an opinion on social media, arrested. The national leadership was silent. Matthew Keane, the New South Wales Liberal Treasurer, is calling for Catherine Deves to be disendorsed. He ought to know that there are many in the Liberal Party seeking his disendorsement because his very utterances are damaging the federal coalition. Yes, the coalition has a mountain to climb, but the Prime Minister has stumbled upon one issue articulated by Catherine Deves, which would have the overwhelming support of the majority of Australians. In the short time remaining, it could well be the issue that turns the tide in favour of the coalition, but only if it's an issue which the coalition leadership is prepared to repeatedly and convincingly articulate. I repeat, this is a far greater challenge for the coalition than 2019. It is a veritable electoral mountain that I suspect some so-called Liberals are not prepared to climb, but would rather assist others in the conquest of their political mountains. I think you know what I mean. All right, let's welcome our first guest on this new program, the Deputy Leader of the Federal Liberal Party. Um, Josh Frydenberg is also the Treasurer, but many describe this man as the hope of the side, but he is opposed in the seat of the Liberal Party founder, Robert Menzies, the seat of Kuyong, another of the so-called independents, to that in a moment, but I will make this point. If there are people watching this in the seat of Kuyong and think that you're going to be advantaged by voting someone to beat this guy forget going to the polling station. So, Treasurer, thank you for your time. <laughs> I must ask you this first question because the latest That's poll today is 53.47. Your employment record is astonishing. Unemployment for February fell to 4%. Participation rate increased to 66.4%. Employment increased to 13.3 million. Underemployment decreased to 6.5%. Why are the polls where they are? Well, Alan, you've been around politics for a very long time and you know there's only one poll that counts and that's Election Day. And you only have to remember back to three years ago when a number of the commentators, a number of the newspapers were writing off the coalition's chances. Indeed, one described our hopes of winning about as, as remote as the dwarf planet Pluto. Well, that never eventuated. We got there over the line. And I sense too right now that many Australians have not uh, reached a final conclusion as to how they will vote on but, uh, Election Day. And they are very uncertain about Anthony Albanese. But a whole lot of things have come together, haven't they? And you get blamed for them when in many instances it's not your fault. Now, 
we've got the cost of living and interest rates. Now, last week's inflation rate, annualised at 5.1%, is the worst result since 2001. And then underlying inflation, which for the benefit of our viewers, takes out the most extreme price movements, is 3.7%, the highest in 2009. More than half of all the categories tracked by the Bureau, like things that count to the family budget, fuel, housing, vegetables, beef, coffee, petrol, lamb, car maintenance, childcare, electricity, showed quarterly price increases of more than 3%. Doesn't this mean that the worker is going backwards when the gap between inflation and wage increases continues to widen? Well, as you know, in the budget that we delivered just a few weeks ago, which was reaffirmed in terms of its forecast by the Independent Secretary of the Treasury and of the Department of Finance, um, we are expecting wages growth to be higher than inflation in the coming years. And the main inflation number that we saw, as you said, 5.1%, were international factors, particularly the higher fuel prices, which were up 35% for the year, which was the single largest increase in fuel prices since Iraq's invasion right. of Kuwait back in 1990. But nonetheless, if you take those out and get this ago, underlying inflation... So, but, Josh, if you get the underlying inflation, mm -hmm. then, you know, the wage price index up to December was 2.3%. Underlying inflation, 3.7%. The gap is still very significant, isn't it? And the worker feels he's going backwards. What do you say to the worker? Well, the way to get higher wages is a, is a tighter labour market and the unemployment rate today is the equal lowest in 48 years. Female unemployment is its lowest level since 1974. And it's the expectation that the unemployment rate will have a three in front of it for the first time in 50 years later this year. And once you get a tighter labour market like that, you get employers competing for employees and bidding up uh, wages. You've also got broader indicators, Alan, uh, in terms of earnings called AENA, which takes into account bonuses and people moving between jobs, which does show a higher uh, return for, for workers in terms of higher earnings. So mm. we're confident um, that the economy mm. will continue to grow and that we'll see a tidal But, Treasurer, there are people watching you tonight who say, I know unemployment's at 4%, uh, migration has virtually stopped, we can't get workers. Now, one way of overcoming the problems we mm. face is higher productivity. How can you get higher productivity when employers can't find workers? Well, there are lots of drivers of higher productivity, including the digital transformation, which we're investing in, um, the skilling up of the workforce, which, again, we're investing in with more apprentices in a trade today than on record. Uh, we're also investing in new infrastructure projects, all of which will drive higher productivity gains. In terms of getting uh, more people into those jobs, because you're absolutely right, Alan, there are workforce shortages in, in key sectors of the economy, in key roles in the economy. The way to get people into those roles and to fill those gaps is to train more people, and that's what we're investing in. That's what the budget was doing. There's also skilled workers who are now coming back after the borders have reopened, and we've also ensured that people can move more freely across the country to take jobs in different states where those jobs are, whereas previously it was a lot more difficult, a lot more red tape. But, see, there's a lot of alarmist talk about interest rates going up uh, tomorrow. Now, surely mm. if the Australian economy can't withstand a cash rate above 0.1% without jobs and the property markets crashing. We must be in more trouble than we're prepared to admit. Don't you agree? 
Well, the cash rates had a historic low, and what I've said publicly before, Alan, is just as fiscal policy, which is the responsibility of government, has started to normalise and we brought to an end those emergency payments, so too will monetary policy, which is the the uh, the decision for the independent board of the Reserve Bank, that will normalise over time, and we've seen that in other in other countries. Should interest rates um, go up tomorrow? The Reserve say, Bank the cash rate today is. Should the Reserve Bank stick up interest well, rates? Well, you know better than to ask it. <laughs> Alan, you know better than to ask just a treasurer test, to speculate just on what the independent board of the reserve. <laughs> just testing. Just so testing or fishing for a headline. I mean, that's it. Doesn't, doesn't tipping all this money that's been promised by both parties in the election campaign, now up to date, it's almost both parties, six million. Now, doesn't this add to the inflation problem? I mean, the coalition's promised 2.27 billion, Labor 2.7 billion. Isn't this merely adding to the inflationary pressures? Well, in terms of what you're uh, alluding to with, in terms of the federal government, uh, in that, a lot of that is in terms of relief for the flood victims and additional support, which we had allowed for in the budget and now we were putting out more information about it. Uh, what we have done is brought to an end that emergency economic support uh, because the economy is definitely coming back strongly. In fact, we're seeing now a recovery which is far greater and far faster and stronger than any other major advanced economy right, around that, the world. Right, that's true. But, but Josh, you've pumped... You, you, there are promises in this election campaign to date of almost $3 billion, and the federal budget pumped billions of dollars into the pockets of consumers who are already enjoying record low interest rates and employment at below 4%. Isn't, I just ask you again, isn't that inflationary? More people with more money chasing the same product up go prices. Well, you can drive up inflation on both the demand side, but also you can see challenges on the supply side. What we're seeing right now is more on the supply side. And what I mean by that, Alan, is because of COVID, for example, uh, people, uh, we saw more goods um, being demanded, but we also saw problems in terms of freight costs and we saw that increase firefold since the beginning of the pandemic. We didn't see as many people in the factories producing the equipment so or producing the widgets, if you like. And so, therefore, the supply of goods was constrained. Mm -hmm. That has led to higher costs flowing through to the, uh, to, to the supermarket shelves here. We've also seen, because of the Ukraine um, developments, Fuel costs increased quite dramatically. Wheat costs increased quite dramatically. Ukraine's a big producer of of uh, of wheat, and obviously Russia's a big producer. No, of nonetheless, energy all these staples, things like housing and everything, are going up in double digit figures. And and I understand mm. that natural food growing regions uh, have been damaged by the drought, and you're going to get blamed for all this and so mm. on. I just want to come come to this business about your electorate. Uh, you have mm -hmm. been, posters of you have been daubed with the most horrific and disgraceful attacks mm. on you and your ethnicity. Uh, why shouldn't this be, I mean, daubed with swastikas, moustaches under your nose in images of Hitler? Why shouldn't this be an election issue? I mean, the fabric of the country is being ripped apart by this sort of behaviour. What, what, are you going, what are you going to do about this? Do you just say, well, look, you know, leave it alone, I'll get on with it? We can't afford that, can we? Well, I think you're absolutely right, Alan, to shine a light on this type of behaviour. And whoever is responsible for it should face 
um, the, the full force of the law. And I've got security teams out there uh, monitoring those signs because they've been repeatedly vandalised. In fact, if you're on one side of the road are my signs, which have been vandalised, on the other side of the road are my opponent's signs, which haven't been touched in many yep. cases. Yep. I do point out that I'm not the only one no. who's been... Glad for you and others, yeah. stickers. A lot of, That's right. Yeah, and Zoe McKenzie yep. and today Karen this Andrews. This is disgraceful stuff. Range. I mean, um, this has got to be elevated. Someone's got, yes. to stop, someone's got to stop I this agree. rubbish in its tracks. The fabric of society is being attacked. Look, just, be, just before you go, because, I mean, I, I just should say to my viewers before we do go, this man's posters have been... Daubed with dog feces. I mean, Hitler's moustache painted on his face. Now, just one final thing. I mean, which I believe, if I can be critical of you, I don't think those candidates like you being opposed by these so called independents and they're not independents have made the point often enough. If these people can't say who they would support mm. in a hung parliament, why are they entitled to one mm. single vote? Well, Alan, let's be very clear who these so-called independents are because they're not independent. They're organised as a political party. They're funded as a political party and they're spending millions of dollars in each electorate. They are simply a slogan and a billboard with a very slick social media campaign. They're being supported by the Labor Party and the Greens. You could barely find a Labor Party and a Greens billboard in my electorate. Why? Because they're in bed with these so-called mm. independents. Mm. And they're running on a Labor Party platform. Yeah. And in the case of my my opponent here, the so-called independent, they're a former long-standing member of the Labor, Labor Party, Party. something they sought That's to conceal. That's called dishonesty. That's called dishonesty. And I'm saying to you, in the three, three weeks remaining, elevate it. Look, I hope we can talk again. Mm. We've run out of time. But sure. I just want to say to the Kuyong voter, you're kidding, aren't you, if you're going to put this bloke onto the sidelines. We've got to think very seriously about what we're doing with our vote. So, Josh, good to talk to you. Good luck in the weeks ahead. Thank you for your Thank time. Thank you, Alan. There he is, the Treasurer of Australia, Deputy Thank Leader you. of the Liberal Party, Josh Frydenberg. Well, much has been said and horrific pictures shown depicting the butchery and brutality of the Russian leader Putin towards innocent Ukrainians. Many would wonder rightly, in a world with 195 countries, how one person could inflict this butchery without being stopped in his tracks. The fact that his military has failed abysmally only engenders further fear that this unchecked despot will resort to tactics far more dangerous. In spite of everything we know and see, Europe is still buying gas from Russia to the tune of about a billion dollars a day. A weak need, short-sighted Europe is actually funding a war that they want us to believe they're comprehensively opposing. But is there another unstated issue here? Ukraine is, Ukraine is extraordinarily endowed with mineral resources of every kind. Coal, iron ore, natural gas, manganese, salt, oil, graphite, sulphur, titanium, nickel, magnesium, timber, mercury. Its output of grain and potatoes is amongst the highest in Europe. It is the world's largest producer of sugar beet and sunflower oil. When it was part of the Soviet Union, it was the highest producer of outputs in the industrial sector and the agricultural sector of the then Soviet economy. In fact, a Moscow-directed transfer of wealth from Ukraine amounted to one-fifth of Ukraine's national income, which financed economic development in other parts of the Soviet Union, namely Russia and Kazakhstan. 
Now, much is written about Russia not wanting NATO in its backyard. I'll have more to say about that later. But Ukraine's current government wants to join NATO and be part of the European Union. But that's only part of the story. Ukraine has the second biggest known gas reserves in Europe, largely unexploited. 1.09 trillion cubic metres, sufficient to be stretched around the earth several times. That is largely unexploited because the old Soviet Union extracted gas on a large scale from Siberia. So while much of Ukraine's gas resources remain untapped, Russia has supplied 40 to 50% of Europe's gas consumption. Germany gets 55% of its gas from Russia. The bulk of it goes through Ukraine, which earns a transit fee equivalent to $7 billion, 4% of Ukraine's GDP. Now, apart from natural gas, Ukraine is rich with minerals, such as iron, coal, titanium, and other non-metallic raw materials. It's the leading nation of the world when it comes to reserves of titanium and iron. Ukraine's iron ore exports are about 3.36 billion, corn 4.77 billion, seed oils 3.75 billion, and these are exported to countries like China and Germany, Italy, Poland, and of course Russia. Now, the war has disrupted those supply chains, so we in Australia will feel price consequences. Ukraine was the fifth largest exporter of iron ore in the world in 2019. But now to the Donbass region, which Putin desperately wants. It has abundant natural resources with metals of the future, lithium and titanium. The lithium fields are in Ukrainian areas, which you hear about in names foreign to many in the West, Donbass, Donetsk and Krutobolka. Given that lithium chemicals are the main component of electric vehicle batteries, the majority of auto vehicle companies are looking at lithium reserves across the world, head of Ukraine. It's said that up to 20% of the proven world reserves of titanium ores are in Ukraine. It is one of the few nations with what's called a closed loop production in the titanium industry. That is, mine it, process it and produce the finished product. China's been fairly silent on the Russian invasion. It was the largest importer of Ukrainian titanium last year. One industry could be impacted should the Ukraine-Russia war intensify. That's the aircraft industry. Titanium is an important component used in the manufacture of aeroplanes. Indeed, Boeing said in January that the tensions over Ukraine create, quote, an adverse climate for its business. In relation to food, the Russian invasion has meant that food exports have been severely interrupted, which will create food security issues elsewhere. Much of Ukraine's corn and wheat has gone to Africa and West Asia, no more. If Ukraine's food exports are disturbed, global food security will be a big issue. So in summary, this war may well be called a race between Russia and the West for Ukrainian resources. If Russia is able to withstand global sanctions, then Russia's authority in Europe grows stronger and the prize will be Ukraine's massive reserves of natural resources. The West, of course, will have you believe that they're trying to stop Russia from dominating Europe through access to the natural riches of Ukraine. Many would say the West are not making much of a fist of it. Forget the strategic implications of the war, Russia v. the West. Ukraine is a significant prize with untouched, untapped natural resources. A foothold by Russia there would give Putin massive economic and energy security, and with both, a very powerful strategic position. Question, will the West wake up? I venture to say not with the crisis in political leadership we see in the West, 
Putin has made his move because Germany's weak and Biden weaker. American voters have a lot to answer for. Well, as you heard me say earlier, what you do with your Senate vote is very, very important. The polls suggest the coalition are in trouble. Your safety valve, if you're a supporter of the coalition and worried about Labor, is to put people in the Senate who'll knock off some of the rubbish that could come from the House of Representatives, which makes the candidature of people like Pauline Hanson very important in this election. As you heard last Wednesday, not for the first time, uh, the extraordinary, I would say, resilient, successful, charismatic, gutsy and determined Pauline Hanson feels she's been dudded. And rest assured, she won't be the loser. The loser may be the Liberal Party. This is hard to believe for a Liberal Party trying to win government. The war has begun in Tasmania. Pauline Hanson has accused the Liberals of a, quote, dirty deal with the devil by deciding to preference the Jackie Lambie network ahead of One Nation in the Tasmanian Senate race. To which Pauline Hanson replied, we're not doing that dirty deal with the devil. Pauline joins me tonight in our studios here in Sydney. Pauline, so you're dirty on the Liberal Party. Did you have any commitment from them, re-Senate preferences in Tasmania? No, I didn't. None whatsoever. They wouldn't talk to us, Alan. They just said, no, there's no preferences. Actually, they didn't offer us any preferences in New South Wales, Victoria, um, Tasmania, South Australia. Goodness me. And they're trying to win government. Uh, I mean, you or this lady always says it as she sees it. So, Pauline, you have said, and I quote you, Labor is rotten to the core, but the Liberals are just as bad because they only pretend to fight for conservative Australian values. What do you mean by that? Well, I've seen the policies that we put up on the floor of Parliament, whether it's notice of motion or whether it's um, uh, putting up things that are important to the Australian people. I introduced a bill about indoctrination in the educational system. Of course, they knocked it back and they wouldn't support my bill. That was given, giving parents the, the ability to actually say, question the, the educational system on the ideology that it's taught to our children with regards to climate change and gender theory. Now, the Libs didn't support this. Um, they wouldn't support my bill. Amazing. I've tried to get up there, Alan, about Amazing. in petroleum and bills that we put up or legislation mm. in Australia's best interest. Mm. Guess what? They've knocked that back. That indoctrination issue is very real, isn't it? It is very real. And you, it's not OK to be white. They voted against that. They voted against the dairy farmers getting a, a fair farm gate price. and missed by one vote, and that was the Libs and Nats that voted against that. So it's con constantly all the time. You've said the deal with Jackie Lambie's party is, and I quote, the last nail in the Morrison government's coffin. What leads you to that conclusion? Well, Jackie Lambie hates their guts. Ellen, to put it mildly, she will not work with them. She doesn't. She has no time for them. They said she, she's a person that she, you know, they said their words is she's a person they cannot work with. They said I'm the best one to work with on the floor of Parliament. I've supported their legislation or actually improved their legislation over the years, and yet they put Jackie Lambie ahead of um, ahead of Astonish. One Nation. It Astonish. is. Now, she actually has former Green staffers from Dina Tully's office working in her office. She's very much Labor, Greens lined. If she gets a second one up in Tasmania, they're going to have a hell of a lot of problems with Jackie Lambie. No doubt about that. Yeah. Will you now preference Labor ahead of the Liberals in selected seats? 
Only in six across the country, Ellen, I haven't taken this bloody-minded attitude. The ones that I've targeted are those left-leaning that need to be thrown out of the Liberal Party because they don't belong in the Liberal Party. They should be in the Greens Party. Even the Liberal members themselves are furious with Morrison because he's hand-picked a lot of these candidates to stand in these seats. And even in Morrison's seat, he's put one nation below Labor. So I'll tell those voters out there, have a look at your, your tickets. Whether you are Liberal or whether you are Labor, they are actually putting us below the other major political party. So both them, Labor is putting one nation below the Liberal Party. So Labor voters' preferences will actually go to Liberals before one nation. And a lot of those Liberal seats are you've preferencing got, the you've Labor. Got, you've got to ask yourself whether, they're trying to, whether the Liberals are trying to win this election or not. I mean, Erica Betts in Tasmania is a genuine Liberal Conservative Senate candidate. Will he get your preferences? But it can't. Eric's going below the line. So right. therefore, I couldn't put out tickets to tell people to vote below the line purely to vote for Eric Betts. Right. It would have actually destroyed our vote. Yeah. So we have to vote above the line. Well, Bridget Archer but, in the seat of Bass. Oh, yes, I want her gone. Um, I've got no... <laughs> yeah, I want her gone. So anyway, she's on a 0.04 margin. But, but, yep. you, but you will preference the Braddon Liberal, Gavin Pearce. Yes, I do, because he is a Conservative. So I want to see... Um, um, you know, um, Zimmerman gone. Yes. I think he needs to go. I'd like to see Fiona Martin gone. So um, you'll preference so Labor ahead of Liberal in Trent Zimmerman's seat of North Sydney? Yes. Tim Wilson in Goldstein? Um, it's not our... Alan, let's make this quite clear. It's only my recommendation on our How to Vote cards. Yep. People I've been trying... I'm the only one that has been trying to educate people that they own their preferences. They don't have to follow the How to Vote cards. Right. So get smart, Australians. Understand the voting system. You make the decision. Because yeah. whichever the way this election goes, it's not up to Pauline Hanson. It is you, the voters out there. Good on you. What I'm saying is this Senate vote... I think is very, very important. Uh, the polls today suggest that Labor are a mile in front. Uh, the Greens have got 15% on the polls, so Labor plus the Greens will get uh, Albanese over the line. So any sort of legislation could come up. Isn't it valid that we should be focusing on the Senate and voting for people who'll knock off some of this rubbish? Most definitely, Alan. It's a House of Review. That's where you final, it finally has passed the Senate. And that's where you get common sense from the crossbench. So I'm not bloody-minded to knock back good legislation because it might be the Liberal Party or it might be the, the Labor Party in the past. But um, Morrison is determined to destroy me and One Nation and he's been propping up all these lefties that are actually... And that's why we've it's got the 2050 net zero. It's extraordinary. Jackie Lambie is reported to have said that any preference deal with the Liberals was, quote, news to us. Your thoughts? Well, that's exactly right. She knew nothing about it till it was printed in the newspaper. So they didn't negotiate with her or talk to her about it. They just did it out of bloody-mindedness to actually destroy One Nation in Tasmania and not give us extra Senate seats, which would actually help the coalition and not having to deal with the lefty side of the, of the parliament. Is there any evidence that disaffected and disappointed Conservatives, as a result of this, may abandon the Liberal Party for One Nation? No, um, I don't believe so. You know, that disaffected, I think they'll still stick with it. But th there has to be pushback within the Liberal Party. They need to get back to their Conservative roots and stand up for the values yeah. that the party was founded on. That's my job and that's what I've been doing for them because I've been doing Morrison's job for him yes. of getting rid of these lefties. 
Is there a problem of dual citizenship with your Senate candidate down there in Tasmania, Steve Mav? No, not at all. I actually went with him to submit the papers into the AEC and I was with him. They went all through it, no problem. What are the issues there for Pauline in this election and especially in Queensland? It's about the cost of living. It's about the coal industry or mining in general because it relies very much in rural and regional areas on the mining sector. You've got the housing crisis that's going on and providing service in rural and regional Australia. And that means doctors, um, nurses, professionals and uh, nursing home um, people. Well, now, they're saying, they're saying in Queensland that Liberal seats like Longman and Flynn are on the knife edge and... Those seats may well be determined by preferences. Will you be, will One Nation be preferencing the Liberal candidates in Longman and Flynn? Oh, too right I am. And Terry Young in Longman has got my second preference. He's a, he's a hard worker. I've worked with him on the family law inquiry. I've got a lot of time for him. And, um, and yes, we're, we are preferencing the National Party in uh, all these seats as well, and the Libs. But I've worked closely with the National Party and I take my hat off to Barnaby Joyce that has actually worked with me to bring common sense back to this election. Good on you, Pauline. In that last election, your primary vote in Queensland surged to 8.86%, which helped Scott Morrison's surprise election win. The most recent news poll have you at 8% in Queensland statewide, but ALP polling apparently has the One Nation primary vote, quote, in the teens in several Labor-targeted seats, including Flynn and Longman. And Liberal strategists say that the Coalition could get back in seats like Longman and Flynn with the flow of One Nation preferences. Will, is that how you see it? Yes, I think there's an un, um, groundswell of support for One Nation in Queensland, as it is happening throughout the whole country, actually. And we won that seat in South Australia, the Upper House, just last week. So it says to there is a groundswell of support. So I'll say to the people out there, if you want your insurance for good government, accountability and honesty and integrity, you have to vote for One Nation. Have you had your coronavirus vaccine? No, and I'm not going to have it, Alan. Right. You've said many times you're not an anti-vaxxer. But you are, quote, not putting that shit in your body. I'm very careful what I put into my body. I don't intend to listen to bureaucrats or politicians or the UN or WHO pushing their own agenda and taking away my freedoms, my rights and my choices. That's why I'm fighting this issue. What should happen to any worker who has lost his or her job because they weren't vaccinated? Alan, I'm putting in a call to all the premiers out there. That they must actually get over this, this stupidity that's going on, give back the workers, their jobs, the teachers, the nurses, doctors, paramedics, everyone, firefighters, the police that have denied the right to actually work in this country and stop bringing foreign workers into your country. So I'm putting out a plea to all these people. This vaccine mandates is one of the biggest issues that's going to hit this election and the political parties will feel the brunt of that good from on the you. people. Good on you. Pauline, it's always good to talk to you. And I've got to say to you, we appreciate very much your honest answers and we'll talk again before the election is over. Thank you for joining us tonight. My pleasure. There she is, Pauline Hanson, the Australian leader of the Pauline Hanson One Nation Party. As I speak to you, there are people who suffered horrific losses and traumatic experiences in the bushfires of 2019-20 who are still waiting for their lives to return to semi-normal. They're soon forgotten. And I say to those of you who are still suffering the consequences of the bushfires of three years ago, don't hesitate to be in touch with us. You'll find my contact details on the screen. The floods which ravaged extensive regions of New South Wales and Queensland and then suffered more wet and wild weather resulted in all sorts of estimates as to the final cost approximating $3 billion, which would make these floods 
slightly less costly than the 3.2 billion Brisbane floods of January 1974. But the cost can't be calculated in money terms. 22 people died across southeast Queensland, northern New South Wales and Sydney. But then, beyond the impossible family tragedy of death, some people lost everything. Their businesses, their assets, their dairy herd, their dairy farm itself, everything but the clothes they were standing in. There are so many tragic stories, but think of the children. They've lost their homes, their toys, their school books, even their school, and of course their education. At an impressionable age, how can we possibly know the impact of all this on young lives? It is horrific. I've advocated for years for a national disaster fund. Every budget appropriates, say, 500 million into such a fund. Have it invested, managed, if you like, by former prime ministers like John Howard, Paul Keating or Tony Abbott. With the 12th largest economy in the world, with a nominal GP of about 2.4 trillion, surely we can afford 500 million a year into a national disaster fund instead of these poor people reaching for the begging bowl. Well, one man who knows all about this is the Mayor of Lismore, Steve Krieg, and he joins me. Steve, thank you for your time. A silly question, but how are things? Um, we're at that really tough, awkward stage at the moment, Alan, like we're 95% through the cleanup, which is really great news, but now the real reality sets in of the rebuild, uh, the reconstruction, and uh, reality's really setting home hitting home for a lot of people as to how we can actually go about this. But where do people where do people live when they've got no home, no clothes, no money, no nothing? That's a really good question. Uh, you know, they've basically had to move back into an uninhabitable house at the moment. And, uh, you know, I did a street walk. I was gifted $3,000 worth of Bunnings vouchers to distribute to the people of Lismore and I walked the streets a couple of weeks ago giving them out and just listening to heartbreaking story after heartbreaking oh, story. I don't, I don't know how you do it. Oh, I saw that ma magnificent Anzac Day march, Steve. People were marching around debris in the main street so the spirit and the pride are still there. But look, the floods began, this is to my viewers, on February 28. February 28. It took, on the, it yep. took until the 9th of March over a week later for the federal government to declare a national emergency in New South Wales. Steve, this isn't satisfactory, surely. Well, you know, the wheels turn pretty slowly, Alan, and people like you are, are trying to kick them along and get them moving, but I agree with you. It's pretty bloody obvious when you're standing yeah. waist deep in mud that yeah. it's a national a national, national disaster. emergency. Now, I, I know, I know right. Dominic Perrottet, the news has spent a lot of time in that area, yet I note that on the 8th of March, a week after the floods began, having not declared a state of emergency and deeming it unnecessary to do so, Mr Perrottet said, quote, the advice we have received is that it's not necessary at this stage and it's something we discuss on a daily basis. Now, Steve, I'm not blaming him, but who are the people giving him advice? Not sure, and I'm certainly not blaming him either. He's taken the um, yeah. the flood up here very personally, and I admire him for that. He's um, he's been up here half a dozen times, and yeah. at, for many days straight, he's very emotionally attached to what's happening up here. I don't know what happens when it gets to the next level. Mm. Uh, all of these announcements are really good, but. The money's just not flowing. Not there, yet, and it's, a and it's real still worry. not. But Steve, it's still not with the bushfire people. I mean, when they say now, this 
Here's the national disaster relief, $1,000 per adult and $400 per child. Steve, seriously, how far does that go? Uh, not very far. No. Um, you know, you know, it's, it's, well, let's be honest, it's nothing really. Nothing. We're, we're 10 weeks after the event yeah. and that's all the people have received all in their bank account. All the people have received. And, there was a Royal Commission and, uh, into the natural disasters it called in the wake of the Black Summer bushfires. It suggested a national emergency should preferably be called early in a disaster, signalling to communities the seriousness of the incident and putting government agencies and defence forces on high alert. But the federal government, which has the power to intervene earlier, said mm, New South Wales should have made the request for help. Steve... How does all this blame calling sit with people who've suffered? Uh, not really well. It's not a it's not a time for blaming and pointing fingers. It's a time for action, Alan. As you know, um, you know the the purse strings need to be open. The money needs to start flowing, and we just need to get on with the rebuild. It's pretty easy to look back in hindsight and and finger point and blame in a couple of years' time. But right now. There's thousands upon thousands of people who are hurting. They have literally nothing, as you've mentioned, and pointing fingers isn't going to help. It's yeah. the support that they need on the ground right, right now. Well, now, listen, we'll keep in touch. You let me know what we can do. I will speak to some of these politicians. I mean, it's not good enough. Rhetoric is quite different from reality, Steve, isn't it? These people need help. Business have got back on their feet. We've got this resilience New South Wales. I mean, what the hell? But by the way, viewers, Resilience New South Wales talked about a strategy and solutions such as social and affordable housing and support for mental health. I mean, this nonsense doesn't sit with the owner of owners of 56,000 properties in northern New South Wales that had to be assessed for flood damage. So look, Steve, keep in touch. I'll talk to some of these people and I'll come back to you and we must probably talk tomorrow to find out what your priorities are. But please be assure all those people up there that at least you've got a voice here. Thanks, Alan. Really appreciate your time. Not Thank at all. You. There is Steve Craig, who'd walk in his shoes, the Mayor of Lismore. What a mess. OK, before we go. In this world, there are many things in short supply. <laughs> Stupidity isn't one of them. While his mother, the Queen, prepares to celebrate her Platinum Jubilee, Prince Charles is praising the idea that cows should wear masks. You heard me. The other day, the Prince visited an exhibition showcasing the designs at the Royal College of Arts where he stumbled on methane-catching devices. The start-up company is called Zelp, and their plan is to attach these <laughs> methane-catching devices to British herds in order to reduce emissions. Francisco Norris, the founder, says this pioneering technology is designed to convert methane that is burped by cows into water and carbon dioxide, which prompts one question at least. What about the other end, the break wind end? Methane is one of the big no-nos with environmental zealots. This device, we're told, sits around the animal's head and captures methane when the cow burps. The gas then travels through a micro-sized catalytic converter and is released into the atmosphere as carbon dioxide and water vapour. Now, hang on, I thought carbon dioxide was the problem. Anyway, Prince Charles labelled the invention as fascinating. I could label it as something else. Bloody idiotic. Cows wearing masks. Prince Charles said it's critical because of the urgency we face in terms of the crisis confronting us in all directions. To the next king, I say, give up the climate preaching, Charles. 
But here's the rub. The cow mask was one of four inventions to win a £50,000 prize. That's $88,000. While in the UK, and it's the same here, nurses and aged care workers struggle to secure a pay increase. Let me know what you think. Email me, <laughs> alanjones at adh.tv. And email me your thoughts on anything else which we've raised in the program. Tomorrow night, I'll look at the problems of the Liberal Party. Can they be reversed? I'll talk to the 28th Prime Minister of Australia, Tony Abbott, who won 25 seats from Labor in two elections and a landslide in 2013. How did he do it? And what are the issues that must be addressed in the next three weeks? That's tomorrow night. Thanks for your company tonight. And remember to tell your friends to download the ADH app on the App Store or Google Play so they can watch on their television. Alternatively, download ADH on your phones or iPads or go to the website adh.tv to watch and read columns from an array of brilliant columnists. And the big plus, it's free. That's it from me tonight. Thank you for your company. See you tomorrow night at 8 o'clock. Good night.